I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I want to welcome everybody to the Unimpressed Podcast. And today we have a friend calling in from New York City, and her name is Barbara Butcher. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing just fine. Thank you, John. Actually, I am the retired uh, Chief of Staff of the New York City Medical Examiner's Office and the retired Director of the Forensic Training Program in private practice now. So retiring from that position in, in private practice, how does that translate? Back then, I was working for the public and uh, as a death investigator for probably the first 11 years of my career there, I was going to crime scenes, suicides, accidents, any kind of death that needed an investigation. And um, working with the police, working with the public, fire department, all kinds of agencies. It was fantastic. Now, as a private citizen, I'm working with families who don't trust, believe, or are unsatisfied with the determination of the police in, in a death of a loved one or the determination of a medical examiner. And it doesn't translate well because you cannot walk away. When I finished a case out in the street, it was done. I spoke mm -hmm. to the family. I worked with the police. We got everything figured out. And then I walked away until, of course, it went to trial if I had to testify. But working with a the family, their heartache lingers. It lingers for years. And it's very much a part of my work is to listen to them. So that's hard. How do you handle that energy? Mm, again, badly. Um, in the moment when I'm speaking to a family member and they're explaining to me why they believe the death of their young son is a homicide, I listen very carefully. I gather all the data, all the uh, investigative reports, autopsy reports, police reports. And then I talk to them about what I think. Um, do they have a, a, a rational claim that it was a homicide or not? Invariably, no matter what I tell them, they cannot accept that their loved one uh, committed suicide or was or, or was died accidentally and foolishly. It's hard to accept that fate is random and nasty and unfair. Things happen. People so, don't like it. So when you take on everybody's, I guess, negative or you know, negative energy, when you take on that, how do you? harbor that? How do you release that? I mean, which way does that go? Is that like when you walk away, what do you do for yourself mm. to kind of get away from that, you know, stuff you're, you're taking in? You know, in the old days, I used to practice uh, radical de detachment. I would cut myself off from my emotions. Uh, for instance, if I had to uh, investigate the homicide of a mother and child, that is unbelievably painful and uh, emotional. So I would shut my emotions off completely and work only from my head, only intellectually and logically and as an observer and recorder of fact. The problem with that is you can't turn off just one emotion. You, they all go off. 
it's you can't be selective. So um, it was difficult to maintain relationships with friends and lovers and and things like that. It's um, it, it, it's not easy to selectively detach. But a very smart forensic pathologist. Uh, I was once when I was in training. I was watching her do the autopsy of an eight-year-old girl who had been raped and smothered, and I was horrified. I was in shock. And I said, uh, how do you stand this? How do you go home and live? And she said, every time you leave this place, you must surround yourself with things of beauty, art, food, love, flowers, the air, anything beautiful and creative, because we are the opposite here, creative. You know, we're, this is the end, the destruction. You have to make new things happen that are beautiful. And I've tried to follow that throughout my life. And now when I hear families begging me, you know, tell me this was not a suicide, um, I try to maintain just a little bit of uh, distance. But then my heart breaks sometimes, you know, when, mm-hmm. you, when you hear a father pleading, it um, sometimes I actually cry a little bit. <laughs> I hate mm-hmm. to say that. It sounds so unprofessional, yeah. but. No, heartbreak is hard to hard to witness. So yeah, I carry it around in my back pocket. I'm a clear sentient. I can't be in a room with, you know, a lot of people without mm-hmm. taking on their energy. And I know a lot of people in the entertainment business, managers, uh, producers, you know, even if some of these managers and producers narratives are not may not be a great narrative, but they take on uh, a lot of brunt of everybody's issues. I would think this would be the extreme. When you want to do something like this or have a career like, what led you down this path to put yourself in this position? Mm-hmm. Alcoholism, actually. Um, really? Yeah, sure. I was a big drinker way back then, and uh, I got sober. And one of the things they offer you in AA is a way to create a new life for yourself. And in New York, there's a, uh, a program for uh, recovering alcoholics called EPRA, the Employment Program for Recovering Alcoholics. And it's free. The state pays for it, or they did anyway. And um, what they did was teach me to be a worker among workers, not an arrogant little, you know, pain in the ass, but a person who could work easily with others. And they gave me all those tests, the Minnesota multiphasic and the preferential and the personality uh, index. And then after many, many tests and many weeks, my counselor called me in and he said, "Um, you know, I, I see two things for you according to test results. One of them is poultry veterinarian and the other is coroner, death investigator. And I said, why poultry? Why not just veterinarian? Somehow, you know, when you worked as a PA, a physician assistant in surgery, you got attached to your patients. And when they died, it really freaked you out. You really didn't do well with that. So if you now took care of puppies and kittens, again, you'd be upset. You'd be emotional. But chickens, they have beady little eyes. Nobody cares about them. Chickens be fine for you. I said, all right, I'll take coroner. I'd rather be with dead folks. And again, I thought that I could be detached. That since Mm -hmm. the person was already dead, well, what the hell? Mm -hmm. It's not going to bother me. I forgot that the dead people have families, you know, and that bothers me a lot. And what were you doing prior to this 
step? Drinking. Drinking? You didn't <laughs> yeah. work or nothing, huh? <laughs> no, of course I worked. Um, I was a physician assistant in surgery and then preventive medicine. Um, I got a master's degree in pub- public health from Columbia University, and I... Uh, I worked as a hospital administrator and in the Bronx in New York, uh, worked on public health issues, building clinics for people, things like that. Um, but, you know, after a time, that, that drinking kind of creeps up on you, uh-huh. ruins things. Well, so right before I got this this uh, job, the medical examiner's office, I was working in a button store part-time. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. With my fancy degrees, you know. And, w- and did you grow up in New York City? Where are you from originally? I'm from Brooklyn, uh, raised on Long Island in a very nice little town, typical development, and then got back to New York City in when I was a teenager or 19, 19, 20 years old around there. And now I'm back in Brooklyn. What town were you in in Long Island? Massapequa Park. Massapequa Park. Yeah, home of Alec Baldwin, Jerry Seinfeld, Christine Jorgensen, all kinds of people. Nice. Well, I've always said Long <laughs> Island is its own country out mm-hmm. there. I actually did some stuff out there with a guy named Gary Milius out at Ohika Castle probably about 12, 15 years ago, something like that. I did a big boxing match out there, but very familiar and the re- reason I asked, I think environment plays a big role in everybody's life. And you're talking about alcohol. I mean, do you think was this? Do you think this something stemmed from your childhood or just from the grind of your environment? Because of being doing what you're doing, I just know that grind and that hard hitting feeling, especially with medical or a coroner or whatever it is. I mean, that's a very uh, up against the wall thing, being in an environment like New York City. Mm-hmm. Which one you think had a play uh, in the alcoholism? Um, I would say genetics, actually. I think I started drinking when I was 14 years old. I drank mouthwash. So that was long before I had any excuse to be drinking. It was just a mm-hmm. craving for alcohol. And uh I got sober, and then I got my job with the medical examiner's office. And uh, was it hard to stay sober while being a death investigator? Absolutely. But I did it. It's now coming on 34 years now, 33 years. Interesting. So going when you started going down this path, I mean, you have any family, kids, married? Yep. I'm the oldest of, of nine children, and um, now I am married, and I have one daughter and two grandchildren who are the cure for everything. All heartache, all misery, everything. These kids are fantastic. And, and when you walked away and, and you're still kind of dabbling in that space. I mean, what, what makes Barbara feel good? I mean, is it the family? Is it, is, is that your escape? I mean, how do you, you know, how do you balance that? How do you go from a, a nice, right? You know what this world is going this, mm-hmm. this nice feeling and you already know what this world is and you step right back into it. What, what kind of personality is needed to do that? That's a hard one. Um, saying basically, you know, I, I think writing the book, uh, what the dead know that was the cure for everything that was inside of me for all these years, everything I was holding back on telling the stories of the people I investigated and their deaths, um, telling about how it affected me, which wasn't great, but telling all that, finally getting it out, that helped me a lot. And moving into a new life of being creative rather than living amid destruction. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing is the grandchildren, mm-hmm. just um, watching unconditional love 
giving it and getting it. And when I can't sleep at night, worrying about cases or all the bad things that happen in the world, I look at videos of the kids or I just, um, you know, I think about what we did during the weekend and that cures it all. When you look at a report before you go do an investigation, when you look at a report, are there any triggers within a report that that is concurring that you notice when you go in like, hey, here's ABC and I'm expecting this or is everything mapped out differently per per death? Everything is is different per death. For instance, when the uh, dispatch, when they call me and say, we've got a homicide in the 2-4 precinct, I'd say, no, we don't. Not until I get there, until I say it's a homicide. Because if you go in with a preconceived notion based on somebody's supposition, you're not going to investigate properly. So whether it said a homicide, suicide, accident, natural death, I never listened to that. I walked into each scene observed the scene, observed the body, listened to the stories of the family, the witness and the police, then made a determination as to what seemed most likely. There have been cases where I'd I'd say, oh, Barbara, we got a homicide here, got a guy at the foot of the stairs, got a bullet in his head. And I look at his head and sure enough, there's a hole in his forehead and it looks just like like a small caliber, 22 caliber. And then all over the floor in the hallway are uh, 22 caliber shells. Seems natural enough, right? Looks like a good old homicide. But then when I get close to the guy and I smell the alcohol on him and I see that he's scuffed up and I see that actually his head has struck the uh, the corner of the wall where it comes together and is like a point, a stone point. That's what punctured his head and killed him and Mm -hmm. broke his neck sliding down the stairs. But why were there shell casings on the floor? Well, because kids opened the door to the backyard into the alleyway and they'd stand in the hallway and shoot at targets out in the uh, back alleyway. So there, there was tons of 22 shell casings everywhere. So this guy was not a homicide. He was an accident, hitting his head while drunk. What's the most famous case you ever ran into? Well, I guess 9-11, you know, the attack on the yeah. World Trade Center. But that's famous for everybody, right? Yeah. National tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I've, I've done the Carnegie Deli massacre, five people shot. What was that? It? What was that all about, the Carnegie Deli? Nice young woman, wanted to be an actress, didn't take off too well, so she decided to deal marijuana, but good quality marijuana to her friends in the acting and, and music business. And uh, two guys came over to rob her, and she had a few clients there. They were all enjoying a glass of wine. And um, so these guys thought, well, we'll steal the money. And they put everybody on the floor, kneeling, bound their wrists and then just executed them. Bang, 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 bang. Just go down the line, kill each one. And they got away with, I think, $240. Wow. Imagine killing that many people or shooting that many people. Wow. Uh, Or the Central Park murder, a big one. They called it the baby-faced butchers. Got a guy, a real estate agent. He likes hanging around the park and drinking beer. And here comes two 15-year-olds that also enjoy drinking beer. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And, uh, you know, they got talking to the guy and then they slaughtered him. Absolutely slaughtered him. Just cut him to ribbons. What for? Nobody ever knows. Mm-hmm. And no one, no one ever did know the answer to that. Both kids were convicted, of course, and caught, but they did seven years and then walked out. They're still wandering around New York someplace. Really? Yeah. Wow. But wouldn't I love to know why? Uh, you know, I think a lot of this stuff is mental illness. You know, mm-hmm. when people are, people are looking for, you know, a splash or did you see any trends of a of a personality or or something like? Because I think there's certain personalities that can't, you may think they can do good, but they can't quite cross over. Did y'all identify any any people like that where it's just, they're just, they're just not coming back, you know, and they may do something? Is there is there any identification to that? Any uh, theory to that? Question why these do, do these things. And because I, I made this statement and it's a pretty pretty blunt, blunt statement because I, I talked to Catherine Ramsland, uh, who actually lives in, in Pennsylvania, close to, close to New York. And she's, a you know, studies serial killers and so forth. And she said that serial killers, you know, are looking for a big splash. And when I thought about that and I thought about these, these shootings, I says, why don't the government make it illegal for the media uh, to report on these crimes? Because if you take away the splash, you take away the crime. Mm-hmm. Is there any thought processes like that you ever experienced with any personalities of in, mm-hmm. in when you were doing service? Sure. You know, there's um, your thought is an interesting one, your idea. I mean, freedom of the press means that we can't prevent people from covering the story and talking about it, therefore letting others know. But what about if we just refuse to say the killer's name ever, mm-hmm. if they just said, the killer and did not use his name in the press and the media. That way you get no recognition. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think some people want to make a big splash and it's largely based on anger. It's like, I'll show you, I'll show y'all for ignoring me or being mean to me. I'm going to show you and make you never forget me. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's very possible. Serial killers. I once asked a forensic psychiatrist, what makes them just enjoy? And really it's truly, it's a pleasure to them to just go and enjoy killing people. And he said, bad brain, no other word for it. They have bad brains. The brain is broken and it's irretrievably broken. There's no such thing as fixing a serial killer. Mm -hmm. That was kind of scary to me. Mm -hmm. And I met a couple of them. As you know, I had to draw their blood or get DNA samples, hair samples. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was very strange. Sometimes they were quite charming and, you know, educated, uh, spoke well. And other times they were just like animals with cold, dead eyes. So that was that was kind of scary. Now, where's what's your lineage? Where's your family from? 
originally? Mm, my mom's side is Italy and Ireland, and my dad's side is Scottish. Scottish. Because mm -hmm. I see like a I see like an engineering mindset in a way, mm. you know, because I, I think it takes a special person to not have these biases to what to do, what you do. Because, and I talked to another guy um, with Justin Brooks, I think, who created the uh, California Innocence Project, you know, and, and he was talking about biases and so forth. And, and obviously the way you approached the, I guess, what is it, the operator, when they called these these mm. cases in, the how you approached it. Um, I think there's a, a limited mindset uh, out there. What do you what do you think about biases in your in your field? Oh, absolutely. Of course, there's bias. There's, um, you know, we all grow up with certain what we believe is knowledge of the truth. And then every so often it gets challenged and it's kind of scary when you think, oh, my God, all my life I believed that, um, oh, let's say Hispanic people uh, I thought were more um, emotional and less uh mathematical or analytical, you know, I, you're like, wait a second, where the hell did I get a thing like that? Mm -hmm. That, that, that they thought differently. That's ridiculous. But I see it all the time. You mm -hmm. see it out in the field. Um, everybody is, is raised up with prejudices and biases and, and you sort of carry them in the back of your mind until they're challenged. But certainly, uh, you know, there are those who think that uh, black people are are more prone to commit crimes than white people. And I think it has nothing to do with color and it has everything to do with poverty. So, you know, there are those kind of assumptions that go around. And when you talk about your book, what was your major expression in the book? Well, like what was coming from the heart when you put this thing together? Uh, it was COVID had just hit and my business was dying out. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, I could die very, very soon. And I don't want to go without having told the stories of some of the people whose, whose deaths I investigated. Some of them are heartbreaking stories. And there's a lot to learn about life by looking at death. And I wanted to get those stories out. So I hurried up and started writing. So what I hoped and what I think I achieved there is to let people know that every single life is a story. Every single life is a universe unto itself with interrelationships throughout the world, throughout uh, the people around us. And to look upon a person, oh, that's just a bum who died in the street. That's just a homeless person. It's not the way it works. Um, so many of the uh, undomiciled or so-called homeless people that I, whose deaths I investigated turned out to be you know, guys who worked as accountants or in advertising, and then they just drank themselves right out of a life and wind up on the street. But then you find out these incredible histories, and it's really jarring to realize how very, very important every single life is and that every person has a story. And so I wanted to get that out. And I also wanted to, I mean, of course, I wanted to share some of the crazy and fun cases I saw. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to let people know the effect of this kind of work on first responders, on death investigators, uh, police officers, firemen. Um, you know, firemen sometimes cry. 
at the mm-hmm. scene you mm-hmm. know, when people are killed. I don't know if anybody knows that. Mm-hmm. Um, death investigators develop this attitude of um, imminent catastrophe. When I walk down the street now and I pass a tall building, I think, oh, shoot, I hope that thing doesn't fall on me. Now, why would I think a crazy thing like that? Well, because it happens all the time in my mind. It happened yeah. at the World Trade Center. It happened with building collapses here. I've dug plenty of people out from under the bricks of a collapsed building. So in my mind, it happens all the time. When I walk around, that's how I feel. And that's not a good, that's not a good way to live. Um, mm-hmm. So I hope that people will recognize, especially those who love true crime. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a huge subset now. I want them to know what it's like to live in true crime. And you, I think I did that. Would you change anything on how these positions are created? Would you do anything different that could maybe help the situation? Or is it, it just kind of is what it is? No, absolutely. I would do peer counseling. Um, we're, we're a very strong group of people and we tend to be tough and talk smart mouth, you know, like, hey, I don't need that stuff. You know, I can, I can handle it. Um, and that's what my boss always said. Barbara, we're very strong people. We're not affected by this. We do this work because we can. And um, that was not true. So I think that the best possible world is that if once a week the investigators get together or cops get together and uh, go out for a drink or a cup of coffee and just talk about the cases of the week. What bothered you? Was anything really nasty? Was anything heartbreaking? Just among themselves, just get it out. How does your husband deal with your life? You know, I'm sure he's, I'm sure there's... Well, actually, it's a wife, first of all. Oh, it's a wife, right. Yeah. How, does the, how does the wife How does the wife deal with, with Barbara? Actually, she is very, very interested in true crime. She was a uh, forensic psychologist working with inmates and stuff, so she knows the business pretty well from the other side, from not from the victims, but from the perpetrators. So she's not phased by it, but... Um, I think she's a little sick of my paranoia and my catastrophizing. Like I got to check the stove three times before we leave the house mm-hmm. because I see um, explosions in my mind. Mm-hmm. I see the gas being left on. Boom! The whole house going up. I think she's tired of that. Well, what What keeps you in New York City? Yeah, that's a very good question, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> You know, I was just, um, I guess it, it feels like home here. Mm-hmm. The grittiness, the rawness of it. Uh, I like being surrounded by lots of people who don't talk to me. Mm-hmm. I like to be alone in a crowd, so that all suits me. But then I was just down in Florida to see my mom. I was sitting outside and birds were singing and swimming around in a pool and having a great old time. And I thought, well, why am I depriving myself of this real uh, relaxation? Does it make sense? I don't know. It's time to think about what's next Mm -hmm. and where is next. Well, if there's anything else you wanted to put out to the world, I mean, what would that be? What would, what would Barbara's, let's say the next 10 years, what, what does Barbara want to, how does, how does Barbara want to lead the next 10 years of her life after having these experiences? And, Hmm. and I wanted to touch on 9-11 a little bit. We can go back to that for a second um, after this question, but where, where does Barbara want to go the next 10 years? Um, I want to go to a peaceful place of creativity. I want to go back to what that forensic pathologist told me all those years ago, surround yourself with things of beauty, create beauty and live in it, live in the moment, not in fear, not in worry, but live in the moment. So 
I will go on to create something else. I might write another book. I'm learning to play piano and guitar. And uh, I'm going to live life mm -hmm. without the constant awareness of death around me. Although I must remind everyone the death rate is 100% now. Always has been, always will yeah, be. Yeah, wow. So we try not to think of it, but someday it's going to be over and I'm going to try and enjoy every single second that I live in right now. Well, 9-11, well, I mean, how long did you have to in investigate that and, and, and what was that? How, how do you investigate something at such a mass level? It was so damn difficult. You know, they say one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. But when you're actually on the ground picking up body parts of a person and, and you see right near them like a little desk calendar or a photo of their children, that's no statistic. That's a life. Mm -hmm. And that was very very disturbing. That's probably what ruined me. I think that was the most overwhelming thing I've ever experienced, standing there amidst so much destruction, so many grieving families, and nearly 3,000 people just snuffed out just for a stupid idea, mm -hmm. some stupid idea that America was the, was the enemy. And um, I, I think that was the worst thing I've ever seen, is the, the, the very personal. Yeah. Yeah, it just, you, you couldn't just say, oh, 3,000 dead. Uh, by the way, those 3,000 dead um, were in 20, I think 23,000 pieces. So that was an endless investigation. It was mostly about recovery and identification, and it still is. That, that work is going on now. It's been more than 20 years, and that work still goes on. Uh, about 60% of the victims were identified, 40-something percent were not. So they keep on working. Interesting. They'll finish it someday. Well, if we want to, if we want to find Barbara's book, where do we, where do we find the book? Uh, what the Dead Know is available in bookstores or or you can order it now on uh, Amazon or any of the, you know, the online sites or, or even go to my website, BarbaraButcherAuthor.com. And there you can see all the various buying options. I wish you luck on, on the book. And I mean, it's a it's an interesting life. I mean, I don't even know what to say because I, <laughs> I mean, I think you're, you know, and I think you're a highly sensitive person, too. Mm -hmm. You seem like you're very highly sensitive to so take the brunt of the brunt of all that. I know it's very, very tough. Like I said, I get thrown thrown out of whack if I'm around more than 10 people, you know, mm -hmm. and taking on the energy and then having to deal with that and those layers. And maybe you should do some meditation. You do That's meditation. <laughs> I, I've tried to. I'm not real good at it. Because yeah. then I always, I realize, oh God, uh, let's see, while I'm meditating, uh, has the stove been turned off? Um, is the door locked? So there's always intrusive thoughts, you know? I wish you the best. Wish you the best for the book. And I hope it does well. And, and some very amazing stories. And you got to, you know, and I think uh, us as a public, you know, I think sometimes they, they take these titles, you know, if you will, uh, for granted in a way. And they don't really understand, you know, even the firefighters don't really understand what, you know, these human beings are experiencing, what roads it can lead you down. And it's I'm sure it's very hard to keep it, keep it straight, you know, because you could go, you know, depending on that experience, you could go any way at any time. Mm -hmm. So I applaud you for the strength of, of being that person to, you know, staying in that straight line, because I, I'm sure that is very, very tough to do. It is. Thank you, John. I appreciate that. Yeah. I appreciate your understanding. And thank you for talking to me today. This is retired forensic investigator, coroner, Barbara Butcher. And I'm John Edmonds Cosma. 
the CEO of Bang Production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.